Drinking aloe vera daily is a great way to help your digestion and balance your stomach acidity naturally. Yes, you heard that right. You should drink your aloe. Our wonderful partners, Lily of the Desert, have been making the highest quality aloe vera products since 1971. When you drink their aloe daily, you can not only support your gut health, but it is clinically proven to boost your immune system, reduce toxins that prohibit nutrient absorption, increase your daily supplement absorption, and improve antioxidant support. Lily of the Desert's aloe juices and gels are the perfect addition to your favorite smoothie, or you can mix it with another juice. The aloe will help boost the nutrient absorption of those good-for-you ingredients. We love that they grow the aloe themselves organically, and from field to bottle, oversee all processing and manufacturing to help maintain quality and lower cost to you. They offer a full range of products, including USDA organic aloe juices and gels, condition-specific herbal formulas, and of course, aloe topicals for your glowing skin. Check them out at your favorite local health food store or on Amazon, or you can visit lilyofthedesert.com to learn more. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Health Power. I have said for years... I think you can be heavier and healthy. I think being thin doesn't mean that you're healthy. I've said a lot of things that kind of perplex people, I think. And I get really inspired by people who are preaching anti-diet culture, loving your body, getting a better and healthier relationship with food. And I found the most amazing person, yes, on TikTok. Everyone's like, I bet she's going to say TikTok because lately I've been having some incredible people. And I found Kate. Kate Regan is a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and founder of Wholesome Chick Nutrition, a virtual group private practice specializing in eating disorder recovery, intuitive eating, and body image. She supports clients on their journey to body trust and firmly believes that health is more than a number on the scale. Hello. So happy to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm really, really excited to be here. So I just watched one of your videos. I love, love, love (laughs) you on TikTok. Tell us your handle. Wholesome Chick Nutrition. Wholesome Chick Nutrition. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I was watching one today where you were talking about how your own disordered eating began. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. Um, Yeah, so that was the first time I actually shared my full story on, on social media. So I'm happy to share it again. It's fresh in my mind. But essentially, um, you know, my, my body image, I guess was first brought to my attention when I was in elementary school or middle school. Um, Of course, a doctor had commented on something and I assumed that that comment meant that my body was wrong in some way. My body was bad. I was doing something wrong. But I didn't actually take any action to change it until about high school. Um, you know, in my video, I talked about how I had a lot of insecurities. I had low confidence. I think a lot of people in high school struggle with that because you're really trying to find who you are as a person and you're trying to fit in and be accepted. And in the society we live in, your, your body has a lot to do with in what ways you're accepted, right? Um, so that is where I kind of, you know, took quote unquote, took control. And I started, you know, over exercising, um, eating healthy, um, which, you know, now I come to know is, you know, orthorexia tendencies when you're 
overly fixated on the ingredients in the foods you're eating and the healthfulness of the foods. Um, and then my body did change slightly, not too much. I hadn't even noticed that it had changed, but one of my coaches, I played field hockey, one of my coaches noticed it and commented and was kind of like congratulating me on that, right? So that was the first time I got attached to that kind of positive reinforcement that smaller is better. And smaller, you know, gets you the attention that I, I wanted. Um, so college is when it really took hold, took root. I um, had a really tough time freshman year of college. I have a really hard time with change, as I think a lot of people do. So my eating disorder kind of manifested as a way for me to cope with those changes. So, you know, as a way for me to get back that control, I felt really out of control. I, you know, I was still struggling with insecurities. So, um I started to cut down on my food intake. I became a vegetarian under the guise that this was for the environment. This was for ethical reasons. But um, we know that that can be used as a mask for disordered eating. It just gave me an excuse to cut out foods. And, you know, if I was in a place where the only thing available was animal products, I would say, oh, I can't eat that because I'm vegetarian. Right. Yeah. So it gave me it gave me an easy out. And that was also something that was applauded. Oh, you're so healthy for doing that. Oh, that's so great of you that you can have so much quote unquote willpower, right? Which yeah. we know is a lie. Um, and so, you know, it just it just got worse over over college. Um, struggled with really poor body image, uh, body dysmorphia. Um, I remember asking my friend one time, uh, when I was at my lowest weight, mind you, do you think I look fat? Um, so, you know, body dysmorphia is real and what you're talking about, it is a mental illness because you're not seeing reality. Right. Right. Um, so I really struggled. My nails were brittle. My skin was turning orange because I was eating carrots and sweet potatoes, which were my safe foods all the time. I lost my period for over seven months. Um, I was incorrectly diagnosed with PCOS because of that. Um, the, the hypothalamic amenorrhea was missed. So that was also an interesting turn in the story. Um, and then I decided that I've, I've had enough of this. You know, I've, I've had enough obsessing about calories and what I'm putting in my body. I don't want to get on the scale twice a day and have that number rule my mood for the entire day. I'm over this. This is not what life is about. And so, you know, I really, I took it into my own hands. I, um, I really didn't tell anyone that I had an eating disorder until I was all the way through it. So I didn't have that much support. Um, I didn't, I wasn't really open during my recovery process. Um, and it was really hard. It was, it was lonely. It was difficult, but I got through it. And now, you know, that's why I'm so passionate about helping other people get through it because I know that that is not what life is about for a fact, because I've been there and I've come out the other side and I am the happiest and healthiest version of me that I've ever been without my eating disorder. Oh, I'm so glad mm -hmm. because I see how miserable it is. Oh, yeah. I'm curious about what was involved in your recovery. Yeah. So a lot of reframing thoughts, a lot of food exposure and challenges. I remember I had, you know, I, I was someone who would restrict all day and be good, right, as what we call it. Um, I would eat as little as possible. And then sometimes I would find myself feeling really out of control at night. Or maybe, you know, I was like 22, 23. So I would, you know, be out drinking with friends. And then I would find myself eating like a whole pizza. Um, and I was like, this doesn't feel good. This feels really out of control. And I know this is coming from a bad place. So I would challenge myself to like really get over that food guilt, 
normalize food, make peace with food. Um, you know, I would challenge myself to, if a, a clothes didn't fit me anymore, I'd get rid of them. I'd get bigger clothes if I needed them. Thank you. Oh my God. I just did a video about that. If your freaking pants don't fit, <laughs> don't save them yeah. and lose weight. Just yep. buy new pants. Yeah. Go on. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I really just tried to normalize that like, this is your body's change and your lowest weight is not always your healthiest weight. And I needed to get over that. Um, I, I started going to therapy and got some support there and, you know, really just got a lot of education, as much education as I could. It was kind of like, uh, just like research about how do you get over an eating disorder? So like I said, it really was all on me. I never went to a dietitian. I oh, only wow. saw a therapist towards the end of my recovery. Um, so yeah, it was a really lonely and hard journey and it took me a lot longer than it should have taken me because I was doing it alone because I now didn't want to did tell you? anyone. Oh, okay. I was about to ask, why yeah. did you choose to do it alone? Mm -hmm. I didn't want to tell anyone. I didn't want to accept that it was real. I remember the first time I, I was honest with myself. I was sitting on the bathroom floor and I was crying and I was like, I have an eating disorder. This is why I feel like this. This is why I felt like this for years. This is not normal. And that was kind of my breaking point. But I still was in this place of like, I, I was in my dietetic internship becoming a dietitian. I was like, I can't tell anyone that I'm struggling with this. Like it was really hard because, you know, I think it's not normalized enough. Many dietitians have either struggled with disordered eating in the past or currently struggle with it. And for me, I was like, I can't tell anyone that I'm struggling with this. Like that was really vulnerable. Um, and I just wanted to be like, I just wanted to hide it and just get through it on my own kind of white knuckle it. Um, so yeah, my healing journey was, was lonely and difficult, but you know, I got through it. How long did it take? Uh, I would say from the time that I actually realized that it was a problem until full recovery two years. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I know now, cause like I work with clients with, with eating disorders, everyone's journey looks different, but I know that if I had support, it would have been shorter than that. Um, and that's something I do regret, uh, because I think support is always the best option. But again, you know, it was just my own, my own self in my way. Well, I'm glad that you are where you are. And the work like I've seen on TikTok is incredible. And I'm sure you must be such an asset to your clients. Mm. You know, I, I want to talk about why focusing on weight loss isn't actually healthy. Yeah. And and I agree 100%. Uh, but again, I think that kind of confuses people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So focusing on weight loss, um, you know, any any pursuit of intentional weight loss is number one, ineffective. We know that intentional weight loss pursuits, up to 95% of people who embark on a weight loss journey will gain the weight back that they lost. And the majority of those people will gain even more weight than what they lost. So first and foremost, we know that it's not working. There is no evidence that shows us that intentional weight loss is actually um, you know, producing weight loss long-term. There's not one single randomized controlled trial that shows sustained weight loss for longer than two years. Not one. So the fact that we keep going back and going back and going back, you end up in this endless cycle of dieting because you just, diets are the number one predictor of weight gain. 
So then you convince yourself, if I'm not on a diet, I'm going to gain weight. So you just stay in this endless cycle of diet, not a diet, diet, not a diet, because it's impossible to sustain because it's so restrictive. Your body biologically and psychologically respond in ways to protect you from that restriction. That is why diets are not sustainable. So focusing on weight loss, number one, is ineffective. And number two, my second point, is that it's actually really harmful. It's harmful to the body to be weight cycling, which happens when you yo-yo diet. Your weight goes up and down and up and down. That can cause a lot of issues, cardiac issues, blood pressure issues. If your weight is constantly changing, your body can't catch up. And also, we know that 35% of occasional dieters progress into what's called pathological dieting. And up to 25% of those people will develop a full-blown eating disorder. So why do we keep doing this? If the risks are this high, 25% of people who diet will get an eating disorder? Like that is just, that alone should prevent people from, from doing it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think the thing with the eating disorder, at least from what I've seen, is that you seem to be able to unhealthily, clearly, but subsist on this small amount of food. How are they able to sustain that? I mean, they got to hit a wall at some point, right? Well, I mean, it's a very nuanced conversation, but I heard one of my favorite dietitians say one time, um, the only way a diet is sustainable is if it turns into an eating disorder. So we have these statistics that say like most people can't sustain a diet, but the ones that do, it's technically classified as disordered eating, right? Okay. Yeah. Because you have to keep like the obsession around food and your body and exercise never ends. So that's the difference between someone who yo-yo diets and someone who has an eating disorder. Okay. People with the eating disorder are are able to sustain those behaviors because it's a mental illness, right? Right. With intuitive eating and and you know, my encouragement to not focus on weight loss, I'm not saying that everyone in every body is healthy, right? But what I'm saying is that we can't determine that just by looking at someone. Right. We can't just say, oh, you know, there's assumptions that are made, but we cannot know for sure whether someone is healthy or not just by taking a glance at what they look like. We have no idea. Even someone who might look healthy on the outside, right? Maybe they're struggling with mental illness. We don't know. Sure. You have no idea. So that's why, you know, you can't judge a person on their outside. Um, But intuitive eating really is for anyone in any body. And I often get that question, right? Like if I'm if I'm so, you know, anti-diet, what are we supposed to do? That's what everyone says. If you don't like this diet and this diet and this diet, what am I supposed to do instead? So how about we focus on behaviors instead of the scale? What are you doing in your life to improve your health? And like, regardless of whether or not your weight is changing, we know that engaging in health-promoting behaviors decreases mortality no matter what quote unquote, BMI you are. Yeah. And BMI is bullshit anyway, right? Absolutely. And so, you know, we have research, there's this one research study that I refer to frequently in, in 2012 that shows that people of any body size, if they engaged in these four health promoting behaviors, 
eating five servings of fruits and vegetables a day, regular exercise, limiting alcohol, and not smoking, just those four behaviors, no matter what size they were, they decreased their mortality significantly, whether or not their body size changed. So if we know this and we know that diets don't work, let's take the focus off the scale. It's clearly not helping anyone. It's not making you healthier like you think it is. It's just creating more obsession. True. So let's focus on how you're feeling in your body. What are you doing on a daily basis that is serving you and serving your health? How are you caring for the vessel you live in? And stop focusing so much on the aesthetics of it all. Yeah, because the aesthetics is just nonsense. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, if I lost weight, like I'm a size 12 and I love my curves. If I lost weight, it wouldn't be for health reasons. I just got all my blood work done and my EKG because I'm having foot surgery soon. Mm. Everything's perfect. So it's not about being healthy. It's about me wanting what I just had a conversation with Dr. Carla, who I also found on TikTok about thin privilege, right? Mm -hmm. On health power, my goal is to help people live their healthiest lives. If you're moving your body and you're eating the fruits and vegetables and you're not smoking, I think that's what matters, right? And having good social connections. Loneliness is a huge, huge thing in being, in being, you know, unhealthy. And so is, so is the stress of focusing on your body size all the flipping time. That's not healthy either. Yeah. If you're obsessed with being healthy, it's not healthy. It's not. It's the opposite, right? It's creating more obsession, more chaos, more, you know, just ruminating thoughts, critical self-talk. We know that's not good for you, right? And, you know, it's just, it's so crazy that we have such unrealistic beauty standards that will literally never be met by the majority of people. So we're, we're, you know, spending our whole lives in pursuit of this ideal beauty standard for what? For health, for happiness, because that's not what happens when you get there. I can tell you that when I was at my smallest size, unhealthiest, unhappiest I've ever been. Most obsessed with my body. So it's a lie. The lie that diet culture creates that once you get to this dream body, You will have everything you've ever wanted. You'll have the job. You'll have the relationship. You'll be happy. Everyone will want to hang out with you. That's not what happens. How was, were you like kind of shocked? Were you like, wait a second? What, why, why am I still unhappy? No, because I thought I wanted to just keep going. I thought I wasn't there yet. Oh. Yep. I was like, okay, I just need to like keep eating healthier and keep exercising more and achieve this and this and this. It's never ending. And like a lot of my clients who struggle with restrictive eating and body dysmorphia say that there is never a thin enough. Right. They could always be thinner. Do you have any advice on to people to how to deal with someone like this in their life? Of course, you don't want to be critical and just cut them out of your lives because, you know, it's, it's something that's deeper. So um, I actually was just talking with a client about this. She was complaining that she was at a pool party. And she's in what you would call a straight-sized body, mid-size, whatever. Um, She has a lot of friends who are smaller than her. And they were all complaining that they felt fat, they looked fat. And she was like, well, what do you think about me then? Right? Right. But we have to first, you know, as the person observing this, you have to first recognize that 
when people say that type of thing, I feel fat, I look fat, anything comparing themselves to another person, you know, it's coming from a place of potentially seeking validation. They want someone to be like, no, you're not. You're not fat, right? They want that confirmation from from an outside source. So that's number one. And number two, you can identify that, oh, wow, they must be really struggling. Because someone who is at peace with their body does not feel the need to say those things. And they're more self-aware and wouldn't say that in front of someone who is, you know, obviously clearly bigger than them. Right. So it's this whole, you know, I, I just encourage my clients to create that separation. Like this comment is not about you. It is not about you. It is all about them. It's projection, it's insecurity, and it has nothing to do with your body size. And that does not mean that you need to change or do anything differently in order to look like. If they don't want to get help, then you can't make them. It's like an alcoholic or someone with a gambling addiction or whatever it is, right? They have to get to their own bottom or they have to make their own decision that this isn't how they want to live anymore. Exactly. Yeah. And what about the fear of, I even if I try, I'm just going to fail? The only way to guarantee failure is if you don't try at all. Maybe there's a chance that you'll fail. We have statistics that that tell us that not everyone with an eating disorder recovers. Most people don't. Right? So, you know, it's not, but like you're, you're just surrendering if you don't try at all. Like there needs to be at least some kind of effort. Ask for support. Like just take one step, one small step. That's what I tell my clients all the time. What is one small step you can take today to move you towards recovery that feels within your reach, that doesn't feel overwhelming, that you can accomplish. And then just keep asking yourself that. I think too, for some some women, especially like if you're in your late 50s and you've been doing this since you were 18, you kind of can feel like it's, I'm just too old or it's too late or it's... Absolutely. I have clients in their 40s, 50s, 60s because they've reached their breaking point. They've reached the point where they're like, this is taking over my life and is no longer worth it. Maybe they have kids now and they're like, I don't want my kids to see this. I want to live a long life for my kids and I'm going to do whatever that takes. Right. So you just have to reach that, that breaking point of like, okay, let's do this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it takes 20 years to get there. Sometimes it takes one year and you're like, nope, I've had enough of this. And sometimes it's your whole life, but it doesn't matter because it's never too late. Yeah, that's such an important message. I want to go back to intuitive eating. So you talked about behaviors. What it, like break down intuitive eating a little bit more for us? So intuitive eating is essentially a self-care framework of eating that allows you to tap into your internal cues of hunger and fullness. It allows you to make peace with all foods so that all foods fit into your diet. There's no guilt with food, no shame with food. You're not using disordered behaviors like restriction or calorie counting or, um, you know, over-exercising. You're making peace with food and with your body so that you can listen to your body, respond to it, and move on with your day and take care of the vessel that you are living in so that it's its healthiest version, no matter what it looks like. There's no focus on weight with intuitive eating. We know that when you do practice intuitive eating, your weight might stay the same. It might go up or it might go down. We don't know. And we remain completely neutral about all of those changes, right? Um, 
And so it's really just a way of, of getting back in touch with your body. Um, we were all born as intuitive eaters and, you know, everyone with kids will, will recognize that, you know, a baby, they will, you know, drink until they're full. And then you can't get them to drink anymore after that because they know that they're full, right? Kids are our best example of intuitive eating. And then along the way, we get stuck in all of these diet culture messages. We start to rely on a lot of external cues like the time of day or how many calories we've eaten or what everyone else at the table is eating instead of really just tapping into what our bodies already know because our bodies are a wealth of information for us. We just have to listen, right? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm taking that. I'm guessing that takes longer for somebody with an eating disorder, right? Because your your cues are just, they're they're not even, you're, you don't, you haven't listened, right? Exactly. Yeah. Like your body's going, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. And you're like, nope, 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 nope. And so it's like, wait, I don't even know what's going on anymore, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, anyone who's who's been manipulating food in that sort of way, whether it's an eating disorder or dieting or anything in between, is going to get out of touch with those hunger and fullness cues. So it does take time. It takes effort. It takes a little bit of structure. So in eating disorder recovery, there is a lot more structure until you can start to practice intuitive eating um, because the healing takes priority. Um, you have to get to a medically stable place before you can just be like, oh yeah, I'm going to eat when I'm hungry and stop when I'm full. Because if you've been malnourished for years, that's not going to work for you, right? You need to get to a point where you are re-nourished and medically stable before you can do those things. Um, so intuitive eating is kind of like the reward for eating disorder recovery. You're like, yes, I got to this place now. Oh, that's huge. What's mm -hmm. some of the structure with it that you just mentioned? Yeah. So we utilize meal plans. So most of my clients are, you know, eating three meals, three snacks a day. We talk about what kinds of foods need to be on the plate. We talk about nutrition in a really neutral way. We, you know, we bust myths about carbs are going to make me fat and, you know, all I need to eat is protein. We talk about all those things um, and there, there needs to be accountability. So um, you know, they need to be eating in this certain way for a certain period of time. If they are underweight, they need to get back to a, um, a place of weight restoration. And then we kind of transition into intuitive eating from there. Do you think people, and I, this happened to you, do you feel kind of lost because your eating disorder or your disordered eating or your dieting is like a big part of your identity? Yes. Right. And suddenly you're like, well, what am I without? I don't even know because I've spent so many years focusing on just this. This has been at the forefront, even if other things are going on in my life. It's almost like you're, it's like letting go of a, of a, you know, front of me. Yes. <laughs> because they're not exactly your friend. Talk yes. to us about that. Absolutely. Um, so I actually did talk about that in, in my TikTok this morning. I think that, you know, I, had that identity as the healthy one, the healthy person. People were, you know, shocked by my willpower and my discipline. So it did become a part of my identity. Um, and, you know, when I would like eat dessert, my family members would be like, oh, look, she's eating dessert and like all these things. So that was part of my identity. Um, and I know for the majority of people with eating disorders, I would say it becomes part of their identity as well. And so this is where working with a therapist is really, really important because they help them to develop a new sense of self, right? They help them to develop a new value system, a new, you know, what, I, what actually do I want my life to look like and what's the authentic version of me? Because my eating disorder kind of came in and hijacked my authentic self and I need to get back to what that is. 
That must have been so beautiful because you're such a wonderful person you know, for you. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm sure for others to be like, you know what? I got a lot going on. It's my favorite part of the journey for my clients when they are like, wait, I'm so much more than this. Like oh, yeah. I, I have a life to live and I have all of these things. And now I have time to pursue new hobbies and spend more time with friends and do all of these things, live in the moment, travel, try new recipes without being obsessed about their weight. I know it's just so time consuming and it's so sad Mm -hmm. and it starts so young. I mean, I have friends that were put on diets when they were six and I feel like parents are well-meaning but they just, they're screwing up, right? Like, how do you, do you ever talk to parents who, you know, cause they're like, well, I don't want my kid to be overweight because it's unhealthy. And then you have to like bust that myth. And then, well, they're going to get picked on and bullied. Yeah, they probably will. But mm-hmm. you putting them on a flipping diet when you're all eating pizza and you're making them eat salads is really bad for their self-esteem, their sense of self, the whole thing, right? So yes. how do we balance that? Yeah. So I do work with parents when I have clients who are adolescents. Um, like under the age of 18, because there has to be that communication line. Um, and it really is just about education. And you you don't know what you don't know, right? A lot of parents have the best intentions. They think that this is what they're doing to help their child. And they want their kids to be healthy and happy. And if their kid is saying, hey, you know, mom and dad, I'm uncomfortable in my body. Of course, the parent's going to be like, okay, well, I can help you try to change it. Let's go to Weight Watchers together but they don't realize the lasting impact that that will have on the kid instead of teaching them to accept their body and take care of it in a different way than just starving themselves. Right. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And one statistic that always just gives me the chills, 91% of 10 year old girls are afraid of being fat. It's heartbreaking. 91%. And that is what we are teaching. That's what we're teaching our kids today to be afraid of fat. How do we even shift this paradigm? I mean, it's just so overwhelmingly present everywhere. Mm-hmm. Omnipresent, I think is the word. Yeah. It's just, right? Yeah. It's everywhere. It's it's very overwhelming at times because sometimes, you know, I feel like my voice is, is so quiet in the sea of all of the other voices that are telling people to, they need to look a certain way. They need to eat a certain way. And then- when me or anyone who has this a similar message to me says something that's opposite of that, uh, there's a lot of lashback. And it just goes to show how loud diet culture is and how many people truly will take this to the grave with them, that you need to be skinny to be healthy. Um, so it's, I mean, all we can do is all we can do, you know? I mean, yeah, I don't true. I don't have a solution for for the paradigm shift, but all I know is that I have so much hope because I see this movement growing and growing every single day. More people are getting on board. More people are coming to realize that dieting is not the answer and that you know their body is fine just the way it is. Well, you are part of the paradigm shift. I mean, you're doing such incredible work. Thank you had you. this great TikTok I watched today where you were like, one sentence that will start an argument. <laughs> Share some of those with us. That was brilliant. Yeah. So I honestly, I remember the first one. I said dieting is disordered eating because oh, yeah. it is, right? You're manipulating food in some way. I think you said you can be fat and healthy. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That was one Which of I them. I say a lot too. Yes. Yeah. Because people it's true. That. It's true. And people <laughs> will literally come at me when I say those things. But you know what? I have a bunch of clients who are in larger bodies and their blood panel, their blood work panel 
perfect, beautiful. They have no issues. Right. It's just, it's just weight stigma that is making us believe these things about people, judging them based on their body size. When that, you know, going back to what I said in the beginning, you can't tell how healthy someone is by just looking at them. Yeah. There, there's a woman, uh, I wish I knew her handle, but she's a larger size woman and she's been teaching yoga forever. Mm-hmm. And she had this great video where she went to a yoga studio and, and the woman, the receptionist is like, I don't think this class is for you. And the woman's like, I've been doing yoga for 15 years and I'm a teacher. And she still like kept arguing with her. Mm. And then even the instructor was an ass. And I'm like, if someone said to me, I've been teaching yoga for 15 years, that end of conversation, number one, I wouldn't do that anyway, because I don't judge people by their size. But number two, I thought this is insanity. Yeah, It happens all the time. It happens not only in fitness classes, but in doctor's offices oh, and God, the bias, clothing yes. stores and just everywhere everywhere. So, you know, and that's why it it really angers me when people get upset about the fat acceptance movement because like we need to support all people in all bodies because they are actively getting discriminated against every single day. And you're upset that we're trying to accept them and show some respect for them? Oh, yes. What does that say about you? That you're so angry that we're trying to show respect to a group of people who are marginalized. Do you have a shred of self-compassion or empathy for other humans? You would not be fat phobic. Oh, yeah. It's just awful. It really is. When I, what I encourage on my show is movement, eating good foods, not being perfect. You can't, you know, don't never eat the standard American diet, but it can't be like the bulk every single meal is something from a box that has 55 ingredients so that you can't pronounce, right? And I would assume when you're working with clients, you want, I would hope that there would be like emphasis on a mix of real foods with, like, how do you approach that? Yeah. So I think the first thing to consider here is uh, socioeconomic status and their access. Food security, right? Like, do they yes. have access to, to fruits and vegetables? Do they have access to, to yummy, nutritious foods? Because if they don't, I don't care what you're eating as long as you're eating, right? Like point blank, adequacy. Adequacy is the number one most important thing when it comes to food. If you can't afford fruits and vegetables, which, you know, that's a whole nother story. But if they're not accessible to you and all you can afford is the dollar menu at McDonald's, then heck yeah, eat the dollar menu at McDonald's. Right. Yeah, no, you're right. I was thinking of people who, I guess, yeah, and that was, that was wrong of me. I was thinking about people who can and just aren't. Absolutely. So if they are in a food secure environment, if they have access to unconditional amounts of food, unconditional types of food, we focus on variety, right? Variety is, is one of the pillars of nutrition, variety, balance, and consistency. We want to make sure you're eating tons of different foods, you know, to support your health, especially your gut health. Variety is really important for that. Um, So you can't just be eating the same foods every day. If you are engaging in restrictive eating behaviors, you're probably missing out on important nutrients and vitamins and minerals. Um, So variety absolutely is important. I always encourage my clients to have as much color on their plate as they can. Um, in amounts that satisfy them while also recognizing that not every meal is going to be like that. And if you go a whole weekend without eating a fruit or vegetable, you're not going to become deficient in vitamins and minerals. You're going to be fine, right? Right. 
Right. And I think too, being less snobby, like, oh, you eat canned fruit or vegetables? Yes. Oh, come on. Get over yourself. Mm-hmm. I eat canned and frozen produce more often than not. Just because I'm a single person, it takes me a while to get through some of these foods. So I, you know, I can't get through the fresh stuff in in time before it goes bad a lot of times. So I rely on on frozen and canned things and they're perfectly nutritious. There's nothing wrong with them. And the fact that they're like demonized in wellness culture as less less healthy, less nutrient dense is a lie. Frozen vegetables are picked at peak ripeness. So they're they have the most nutrition content possible. I love frozen vegetables. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just am all about it. How do you work with people who were who abused exercise mm. to get them to still just do what they call joyful movement. Yeah. I love that, right? I because love that you, too. is there a slippery slope for some people? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, some clients I work with, they need to take a full break from exercise for a while in order to heal their relationship with food or not food with exercise. Um, So, you know, we really dig in just like we would with food. We really dig into the relationship with movement. Why are you doing this movement? Is it only to change your body? How do you feel when you don't do the movement? Like, are you having a lot of guilt that comes up? Are you being critical if you skip a day or take a rest day? Because that's where I get curious. And that's where movement negatively impacts your mental health. And there is such a thing as over-exercise. You could really be overdoing it. You could be, you know, creating all these other issues that you think you're like being healthy and, and exercising a lot to prevent health issues, but you might be creating other issues in the process. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. I think one thing for me, you know, I, I'm I'm almost 55 and I want to be standing up as straight as I can when yeah. I'm 85 and yes. I want to have good mobility, yes. right? So I, I, I stress that more than the aesthetics. Yes, a hundred percent. And you know, not all clients need to take a break from movement. That was just one example. If their relationship with movement is just kind of like, it might not be obsessive, but it's in kind of this rocky place. Then we really just talk about what the intention is behind the movement and trying to get them to focus more on how they're feeling versus how the movement might be making them look. Is this movement feeling good for you? Are you challenging yourself to a point where like, you feel good when the exercise is over or are you completely depleting yourself and you feel sore for the next 10 days? Like where's the balance between joyful movement, challenging yourself and taking it too far, right? Yeah. Something that I focus a lot on the program on is trauma. And for the people that I know that have eating disorders, they all had very traumatic childhoods. I'm not saying that's a thing across the board. Where does trauma work come in? Yeah, so... If you are doing eating disorder work, it's essential that you're trauma-informed because, you know, like you said, it's not in every single case that that is, is happening, but in a lot of cases, it is. And it could be trauma in any form. It doesn't need to just be trauma around food. It could be trauma around anything. And food manipulation of food or focusing on your body is a way to cope with that. The control, right? Yes. It could be control. It could be comfort. It could make you feel safe. You know, there's a lot of eating disorders exist for a purpose, right? They're functional. They, they, you hold on to them because they're doing something positive for you. 
but we know that long term, they're not good for your health. So we need to replace those unhealthy coping mechanisms with healthy coping mechanisms so that you're getting the same results. You're, you're still feeling in control. You're still feeling comfort and safety without the negative side effects. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, the, for people, women, especially who've had sexual abuse as children or, you know, physical other types of abuse, but especially sexual abuse, you know, that, that having that control with the yes. eating disorder. And I think also distracting yourself from your trauma mm-hmm. and letting go of that is scary because then you got to look at your trauma. Exactly. Are some of the people you work with who've had these types of issues, are they delving in with the with the therapist? Is it a team? Is it, you know, what's going on? Absolutely a team all of the time. If I know that someone has a trauma history and anyone with, you know, depending on the severity, anyone with a certain type of eating disorder, I require them to be working with a therapist because I am not trained to help them deal with their trauma. I just need to be informed on how to communicate with them um, so as to avoid triggering them as to, you know, I just need to be informed, but that is, you know, scope of scope of practice is very important in our work. And I will not cross over into that boundary of telling them that I'm a safe person to help them unpack this trauma with, because I don't feel comfortable doing that. And they need to be with someone who's actually going to help them through that trauma. So they absolutely need to be with a therapist. If they need a psychiatrist, if they need a, you know, a PCP, they need a full team, basically. The other thing is, how do you take care of yourself? Because I imagine it could be tough if you're working with a client and you're making progress and all of a sudden they're just like, this is too much. And they just like go back to their disordered eating or they just hang on to that eating disorder. It, it, and also how not, not getting triggered by all the stuff they're talking about that you went through, which is very traumatic. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I... It, it does happen. Clients do, you know, make progress and then go back. They, they relapse, they, you know, go, it's, it's tough. Like I said, you know, the majority of people will, will struggle with their disordered eating for their lifetime. Um, so I, you know, I, I go to my own therapy. I get supervision for really tough cases. I'm part of, of groups of other dietitians and therapists where I can, you know, decompress and talk about my emotions with certain cases and, you know, how best to support my clients. Um, you know, if someone did say something that was upsetting to me, I have a space to kind of speak about that with other people who know what I'm going through. So it's really important to have that support system to, you know, because, therapists and dietitians they need to protect their own mental health too when you're dealing with these cases because it can be really really difficult and challenging and upsetting it can get emotional but you can't be you know feeding into that you need to be their their rock their support system so you need to deal with that elsewhere and what's advice do you have for people who are like you know what screw diet culture and screw my mom and dad, especially if you're a teen and they're like, should you be having that second helping or like, do you have advice for, for people or even if they're older, right. And their family or friends just get on them, you know, like food police them. Yeah. Uh, boundaries. I'm a big person with boundaries. Um, I encourage my clients to set boundaries all of the time. If, if someone is making comments that are impeding their recovery, that person needs to know that those comments are not welcome. Um, and, you know, it doesn't have to be in a, in a confrontational way. It doesn't need to be explosive. It just needs to be, hey, you know, dad or hey, whatever. This comment is not helpful to me. 
you know, it's, I'm working on my relationship with food and saying something like that really hurts me. So I would appreciate you not commenting on my food or my body from here on out. I'm working with a professional on it. I don't need the input from you. I'd rather just keep our relationship, you know, as, as whatever friend and friend or dad and child and not talk about those things together. Yeah, that's such good advice. That is so incredibly important. You're just, I'm just so taken with the work that you do. Uh And I just, we got to change this diet culture mentality. It's just, I know it just doesn't work. Oh, the last thing I want to ask you about, because I'm sure, you know, I know you get crap for it. I get crap for it. You know, people who are fat acceptance and I'm like, listen, I'm healthy and fat get you know, shit for it. Are there studies? Are there, is there science that we can just say, listen, go to this and you will see that I'm not talking out of my, you know what, you know mm. what I mean? Cause they're like, because the dominant paradigm is fat equals unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And we're saying that's not true. Yeah. So can we point people to certain things that are going to help them? Can we say, look at this study, look at this study, look at this study, look, you know, do you have any advice for that or tips or where to find stuff like that? Absolutely. So there are a lot of resources for um, the health at every size movement. So there's a health at every size book. Um, one of my favorite podcasts that, uh, you know, really addresses these issues is Food Psych by Christy Harrison. So that's a really great wealth of information. And then someone that I love to follow on Instagram, I think she's on TikTok too, but Hannah Talks Bodies. She talks a lot about research. So if you are someone who is like data driven and you're like, okay, you're saying this, but I need the facts. Where's the evidence? She'll talk about, you know, here's this study that shows X, Y, and Z. And so it's really, really helpful. Yeah. I'm super sciencey. I'm a science nerd. Mm -hmm. I love it. So Kate, this has been great. Is there anything? I love that rhyme. Kate, this has been great. Sometimes <laughs> I break into song, even though I know it's wrong. Uh, Kate, was there anything else you wanted to add today? <laughs> I don't think so. This has been a pleasure. It's always it's always great when we can uh, we can make a dent in diet culture one conversation at a time. So you know, I hope the people listening to this really find value. Oh, absolutely. All right, tell us all the ways we can find you. Yeah, so I am on TikTok and Instagram at Wholesome Chick Nutrition. And my website is also the same, wholesomechicknutrition.com. Oh, that's fantastic. All right, everybody, just just know that you need to get away from diet culture. You want to follow Kate and follow me on TikTok if you want to laugh, if you want to learn, if you want to see my beautiful pit bull blue, if you want to see me floating around in my pool acting like a goof, at Lisa Davis, MPH. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you and we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.